this episode of a slice of ham is brought to you by Jordan Malone, Seth Godwin, Rebecca Handy, <laughs> Marty Abernathy, Ali McDowell, Mindy Carrier, Kristin Knapp, Heather Aranda, Leslie Gettinger, and August Reed. Thank you very much for supporting me. Thank you very much for joining the family. Thank you very much for being my patrons on Patreon. As always, I have to give you a very long-winded thank you and congratulations at the beginning of the episode. And I have to do it in a way that makes it sound like I'm not having a stroke. So... I, I think I did a fairly good job. I think that I did a fairly good job there. I don't know why. Who is that guy? What? Who's that? What's his name? I think his name is Rodrigo Sanchez. All right, let's read. If you want to read a book, then you can read a book. Uh, if you want to read a book, uh, then come on, read a book. Uh, if you want to read a book, uh, then come on, read a book. Hey, welcome. And, uh, what? Listen, I was so excited with the song that I got jumbled and had a stroke. Welcome to another episode of A Slice of Ham. How are you doing today i hope that you are having a very fun day today because today is going to be another episode of let's read oh my god we are uh halfway through we we're halfway through this book now uh and it's very exciting to be uh halfway through the book here because uh then it means we're almost done and we can move on to another book um I don't like the Turpins very much. I don't like the Turpins at all. Uh, I think they smell. I bet you they got a fucking smell to them. I want to know. Here's what I want to know from you, lovely listener. I want us to take the time right now. And I want to hear from you. I want you guys to send me an email as to what you think the Turpins smell like. Um, I think they smell like... I think David, David smells like fresh linen Febreze and sour milk, and Louise smells like sour milk and shitty cologne, like shitty perfume. I don't know. But I, I know that they suck. So we are going to be continuing reading The Family Next Door. I believe we left off on chapter... Let me get my notes here. I'm just rustling papers in front of the microphone. I wasn't actually getting notes. I wasn't getting notes. I was lying to you. That's the power of theater. Ooh. Um, I wrote it down. I definitely did. So we left off on ooh, chapter 18 we finished. So we're going to be on chapter 19, and I hope to get through uh, chapter 22 so that next week we can start on chapter 23. Um, 
If you are tired of listening about the Turpins, I am reading another book on my Patreon, on my secret book club. I'm actually reading about Chris Watts. Um, And fuck, is that book good. I didn't expect the book to be as good as it was, but it gives a very, very, very detailed. And when I say detailed, I mean D-E-T-A-L-D. That's how detailed it is. Every fucking syllable. Um... I have a very good idea of who Shanann is, Um, and I have a very good idea of who Chris is, and really it paints a very good picture as to how the relationship ended up crumbling, you know, and it paints a very good picture as to how they kind of sort of yes-anded themselves into a relationship with kids, Um, but that's great. In other news, I talked about... um, uh on my uh on my next podcast the actual proper slice of ham podcast um episode i recorded it a couple days ago i recorded it yesterday not a couple days ago god what is wrong with my sense of time i don't even know what day is it it's monday okay so yesterday was sunday don't you love how southern people say that um so sunday i recorded a lot of fucking um Stuff I recorded a lot of book club stuff uh, for the Patreon, and I recorded a little bit of the podcast for the actual slice of ham, like the rabbit holes that I go down. Um, and I briefly touched on the Gabby Petito case, and I mean, at the time that this will be airing, I'm pretty sure all of the news will have gone gone out, but it's. <clears throat> I try to record these episodes as far in advance as I can. So right now it is Monday, September 20th. And yesterday the news broke that a body has been found in the Grand Teton area that may match Gabby Petito's um, description. And just like that, my heart fucking sank because I was hoping... A small sliver of me was hoping that she would still be alive. Even though... um, you have to think realistically when someone's been missing for that long. Um, but I was hoping because you never want you, you you never want the fucking worst to happen. And it seems like the worst has happened, but we won't know until we have more information. Um, I saw a TikTok of somebody calling out the people that are interested in this case uh, for the wrong reasons, like people that are posting about it on TikTok. I guess people are posting about the case on TikTok and trying to ape it for views. Um, but they were like pretending to be one of the people that was interested in the case uh, for the wrong reasons. And they were like, oh my God, did you hear we got a Gabby Petito update? And then, you know, a fake person from the background was like, did they find her alive? And then the girl was like, well, no, what does that matter? Who can, why does that matter? Um, it, it's there, there are some people that are just aping on this true crime case just for the information, just for the views, just for the attention. Um, but you have to remember that this is a person. I was looking at the Wikipedia page. There's a Wikipedia page for the disappearance of Gabrielle Petito. Now, there's a whole ass Wikipedia page for it. And I thought to myself, would that girl have gotten a Wikipedia page if not for her disappearance, would we be, would I know her name if it not, if not for her disappearance? 
would all of these people be talking about her if not for her disappearance? I mean, she did have a following on social media, but it was not nearly as national as this. It wasn't as all-encompassing as the interest in her disappearance. So it just goes to show, like, it's, I, I have some thoughts myself, like, what if I was murdered and my murder was caught on video and distributed online? Because there, I, I have seen some fucked up shit on the internet. Um, for those of you that don't know, I was born in 1995. So my experience with the early internet was, it was like the Wild West of the internet. Uh, I was in middle school from 2006 to 2008. I remember seeing two girls, one cup for the first time in sixth grade. I remember seeing, um, like murders and gore videos and just completely unregulated content. And it's still not regulated, but it was even more so it wasn't, you know, the social media landscape wasn't, it wasn't really social media. It was just media. Um, there was no social aspect to it uh, other than just like going to the websites that you liked. Um, I, I've seen some horrible shit. I've been completely desensitized um, because of the internet. I will say that that, I, that is one thing that... I, that's one thing about my brain that's a little bit fucked up is that I've been completely desensitized by the internet. And, you know, if that's one of the few fucked up things, then I'm doing all right. Um, I wonder sometimes, like, what if I was murdered and my death video somehow made it on the internet? What, like, what if my little sister stumbled upon that one day? What if my friend was going through, like, one of those gore sites and then stumbled upon my fucking video? I would hope that, I would hope that my, I would, well, I would think that my sister would turn it off, but my best friend would watch it. Um, is that fucked up? I don't know if that's fucked up or not. Um, but <laughs> hearing myself, cause I can hear myself in the microphone. Hearing myself say that was a little fucked up. <laughs> um, here's a question for you, listener. Would you watch my murder video? If I was murdered, would you watch it? I would be very flattered. God. I wouldn't know. I'd be dead, you know? Um, I, I think of all the, the death videos that I've seen, and like all of those videos, every single one of those videos, that was a person with a name and goals in life and who has made mistakes and I, scrolling through the internet at 1.30 in the morning, get to see this individual get murdered with a pickaxe. That was one of the ones I saw, recently, even. And I don't know what the morbid fascination is with watching these videos, and I know that I am not the only one. There's one thing that the internet has taught me. I know for a fact that I'm not the only one that watches these types of videos. And even some of you guys listening, you guys might also be into that type of thing too. And it's not like, oh yeah, I'm watching gore videos to like blah, 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 death and blood and I love it and I love death. It's like a weird morbid fascination. Like I'm glad that I'm alive not going through that. 
Um, but there is that one part of the brain, you know, that the self-aware part that takes a look at that and goes, what the fuck are you doing? You're watching, you're watching death and gore videos. What are you, what the, why, why are you getting a kick out of this? And it's like, well, because I, I watched the video and then afterward I, I, I touch my body and I go, I'm alive. I appreciate what I've got. It makes you weirdly grateful for what you have. Um, at least for me. Um, but, you know, that also might just be my brain trying to rationalize the fact that it's been desensitized from all this bullshit from a young age, you know. So the only thing that my brain can do is like, well, it makes me appreciative of what I got. Because it's a little bit more hard to say, oh, I'm desensitized. But I think that that's a common thing with people my age, people that grew up in that time of the internet. The wild motherfucking west of the internet. Um, anyway, speaking of the wild west, we're going to go into the wild west of child care with David and Louise Turpin. Again... There might be some of you that was listening to that like, oh my God, I can't believe that he watches like all those fucked up videos. Oh my God. Let's listen to a book about child abuse. Like, come on now. We all are fascinated with the morbid in our own way. Um, unless you're just like very sheltered and not interested in that because there are some people like that, but you wouldn't be listening to this if you were. Um, or maybe you would. I don't know you personally. Bar, I burped again, and I'm really sorry for it. Okay, now, time to get into it. It's time to dive right into this house of fucking horrors. It's probably, it's hopefully time to dive into the escape and rescue of the Turpin children. Does it get any better for them? Do we see any justice for these children? We're about to find out here on Let's Read... Over and only next door. Part 3. The Magnificent Thirteen. Oh, that makes me sad. That makes me a little sad. They are magnificent, though, but... <sighs> magnificent because of what they had to go through? <sighs> it's not really all that magnificent that they had to go through it, but it is magnificent that they survived it. Chapter 19, Rescue. Before I start the, the chapter, um, how fucking refreshing is that to hear that? To hear that they're being rescued? Holy moly. Alrighty, here we go. Thank God that we're actually finally getting some help for these children. In the wake of Jordan Turpin's 911 call, dozens of police officers descended on 160 Muir Woods Road and would remain there for weeks. David and Louise were led out in handcuffs, one behind the other. They were driven to the Paris Police Department to be formally arrested and processed. When the sheriff's deputies walked into the house, they were appalled at its filthy state and the overpowering stench of human waste. They found the children scattered in different rooms around the house. Jonathan Turpin was still chained up when they walked into his bedroom and freed him. 
Julissa and Joanna, chained to their bunk beds since October, had already been freed by Jessica on mother's orders. Jessica had hastily thrown the chains and padlock into a closet. Okay, so now when did this happen? Holy fuck, this was January. So they'd been chained up for two months. I'm sad. I'm like sad, but I'm also numb. I'm numb to the abuse that David and Louise have done because it's just like, oh, fuck. I I feel like I've gone through it. And, and this is just reading about it. I feel, I don't feel like I've gone through the abuse, but I feel like it's lasted forever. I feel like it has lasted for fucking ever, man. Within minutes, agents from both Child Protective Services and Adult Protective Services arrived to look after the children. And it's because some of the children were fucking adults now. Jesus. Officers from the Riverside Fire Department came soon afterward. There was a very foul smell inside the residence, said Captain Greg Fellows, the chief of police for the city of Paris, who was one of the first officers to enter. It was extremely dirty. Many of the children were malnourished. About 45 minutes after the police arrived, the Turpin children were led out of the house one at a time wearing pajamas, one of the older daughters carrying baby Jana. An officer standing in the driveway ushered them into a waiting police van. One of the children who had fallen behind ran to catch up. They were then driven to the Paris Police Department, where officers made them comfortable. A deputy went to get food as the children said they were starving. Medics treated them with IV drips full of antibiotics, vitamins, and nutrients. Blood samples were taken to confirm they were all David and Louise Turpin's biological children. Over the next several hours, members of the Child Protective Services and Adult Protective Services gently talked to the 13 siblings. Although they never mentioned their parents, some did ask about their two dogs, which had been taken to an animal shelter for safekeeping. At 1.40 p.m., Deputy Manuel Campos walked into an interview room at the Paris Police Department's Detective Bureau, where a nervous Jordan Turpin was waiting. <laughs> this kid's a badass. Jordan Turpin, ooh, this kid's a this kid's a machine. Goodness gracious! Whew. On the other side of the police station, Detective Thomas Salisbury of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department, who had been appointed the lead investigator in the case, was interviewing David and Louise Turpin separately. Initially. Deputy Campos thought Jordan was only ten years old due to her emaciated body and childish speech patterns. She was filthy. She appeared to have the mental capacity of somebody a lot younger than 17 years old, he later noted. Her hair appeared to be unwashed. She appeared to not bathe regularly. She had a lot of dirt on her skin. It looked like it was caked on. During the hour-long interview, Deputy Campos asked if she had any injuries. Jordan tried to show him a scar on her foot, but it was impossible to see through all the dirt caking her skin. Speaking in simple sentences and struggling to pronounce words, Jordan described her and her siblings' torturous life. She constantly referred to her parents as mother and father, explaining that they insisted on being called that, quote, as it was more like the Bible days. Campos asked how she had felt during the escape a few hours earlier. 
She said she was scared to death, he would later testify. She said it was one of the scariest things she's ever done. Jordan told Campos she had escaped because she could no longer watch Julissa and Joanna wake up crying in pain from being chained up. It was hurting her, said Detective Campos, and depressing her. She also revealed that Mother had been in a particularly foul mood that morning, yelling at 13-year-old Jolinda and telling her she was worse than the devil. That had particularly upset Jordan, who said she was a good Christian. She boldly spoke about her love for God, Campos said, and when she would hear her mother call her or her siblings the devil, it really, really bothered her and hurt her a lot. Jordan described her disgusting living conditions and her daily routine of spending 20 hours a day in the bedroom she shared with her three sisters, never seeing daylight. She said she slept for more than 15 hours a day and could not leave her room without her mother's permission. She told me she lived in filth, said Campos, that her room was dirty and that it smelled really bad. There were often times that she couldn't breathe and would stick her head out of the bedroom window. Jordan said that even altering the permanent enclosed block, the per, the, get the bug out of your mouth. <laughs> I had a little bug in my mouth that uh, caused me to uh, stumble and fumble. Excuse me. Where was I? What happened? Jordan said that even altering the permanently closed blinds to open the window was a serious crime, punishable by being, being beaten or chained up. Oh, even touching the blinds would get you punished. I don't... Ugh. She would be disciplined, said the detective, in the form of knocking on her head and pulling her hair. She said she would get hit and smacked in the face and pushed. She used the word pitching. Mother would pitch them around the room as she was pulling their hair. Jordan recounted how Mother had choked her for watching a Justin Bieber video on Jennifer's cell phone. Although Jordan said she had never been chained up, many of her siblings had been for several months at a time. The chains were only removed so they could use the restroom, eat, and brush their teeth. Jordan also spoke of her recent activity on social media, posting YouTube videos of her songs, making friends on Twitter. She gave a lot of credit to Jennifer, said Campos. She said that almost everything she knows is because of her, and she feels like she has nothing in her brain. The teenager described her life as nothing, saying mother had given up teaching them and father's homeschool was a sham. The detective was shocked by Jordan's lack of basic knowledge. Now, she's 17, and even the detectives can tell, like, eh, there's something right with this child. Man. She told me that her parents call it private school, said Campos, and she did part of the first grade when she was 15 or 16. Uh, she knew we were in the year 2018, and she knew we were in the first month of the year, but she did not know the name of the month, the day, or the date. Holy shit. She didn't even know what January was. I'm... I'm really sad. <laughs> oh, no. 
that's one of the cruelest things you can do to somebody is, I mean, these children have found themselves in a terrible position where they can't help themselves because from birth they've been set up for failure because their parents have withheld education. We don't realize how how vital education is, how how important it is for for survival to educate yourself and not like you know you don't have to you don't have to go to school you don't have to go to college to be educated you know you should go to school you should go through school whether it's public or private you should try to get your high school diploma or your GED at the very least but education uh, it means many things and these kids were not getting an education in any sense of the word Ugh. Jordan said she had only seen a doctor once in her life and had never gone to a dentist. She had no friends beside her new online ones and spent her waking hours playing with her Barbie doll and writing songs and stories in her journal. She described how the siblings were only given one meal a day as they weren't awake long enough to eat two. All they ate were peanut butter or bologna sandwiches, or a frozen burrito and chips. Ugh. I, I imagine, how much, like, to stunt them socially as well. They really wanted to set their kids up for failure. Um, how lonely must these children be? It reminds me of, like, feral children, or cases of feral children, like children that have been, quote, raised by wolves. Really, feral children are, it's the blanket term used to describe children that have not been given the uh, attention that they need in their critical years of development. And these children were getting attention, but it was negative attention, to say the least. I mean, they're being abused, but... You know, they're being fed one meal a day. There are some cases where the child is put in a in a room, locked in there, not talked to. They don't talk to the kid. They don't touch the kid. You know how important it is to hold a baby. That's why they do skin-on-skin -skin contact. That's why they make you pay for the shit if you're an American. If you're an American in a hospital, they bill you to let to, they bill you to hold your child like with your shirt off, skin on skin. Um and it's a lot of money. Um it's so important because inherently we as human beings, we feel something from that physical touch. We feel a connection. The neurons in our brain start forming. Uh we form more neurons, we form more connections. We you know, we expand as human beings when we have that vital, you know, touch, attention, you know? When parents go up to the baby and they go, Hi, baby, how are you? That's not for no reason. I mean, it's maybe because that's just what parents do for children, but it's an instinct because that's, you know, how you show your love to that child, show them that they are loved, Give them the stimulus that they need. If you don't give a child stimulus, you are significantly setting up that child for failure. 
I will tell you a story. I don't know of it. I don't know of this story personally, but I remember when I found out about this story. I was in middle school. I was in sixth grade. Uh, I was in the sixth grade when I found out about this story. Um, and it was because it was like on Oprah. It, I, I I had Googled feral children because I had learned about Jeannie, who is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, feral child. Um, because Jeannie, for the first, I guess, 13 years of her life, was just not interacted with. And she, psychologists look at these studies and they're like, whoa, interesting. They're like, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Wow. And it is fascinating. It's fascinating to see how they just don't develop language, how they communicate, how they express their desires, wants, needs, when they haven't learned language to be able to do that, when they've you know, had to fend for themselves their entire life in their most important development or developmental years. Um, there's a case of a girl by the name of Danielle Crockett um, who was rescued, I believe, when she was eight or nine. I don't remember all the details. I could be misremembering, but I, she looked like she was three or four. Um, she was emaciated. She was found with a full diaper, like shitty diapers all in the corner of the room. German cockroaches everywhere throughout the house. And in, it happened in beautiful, sunny old Plant City, Florida, where I was born and raised. And that was a very, it was a very sobering moment because I was like, oh, I just read about Jeannie, the feral child who that happened forever. And oh, that could never happen near me. And then it happened. And then it, I, I read that it happened in my fucking backyard. And it was a very sobering moment for me to have as a child. Like, whoa, maybe human beings are not that great. You know, um, it was. That case is one to dive into. Um, uh, she was on Oprah, you know, and they did Oprah. Where are they now? They she got significant media coverage. Um, yeah, not proud of that. All right, back to the book. Jordan told the investigator that she had been outside on only a handful of occasions, including Halloween, Las Vegas, and a trip to Disneyland when she was 11 years old. Toward the end of the interview, the investigator asked if she had ever been sexually abused. Jordan told him about the incident in Marietta when she was 12, when her father had pulled her pants down and put her on his lap. She said they were interrupted by Mother's return before he could do anything further, but Father later told her not to tell anyone. Campos asked Jordan what she thought her father had been trying to do. I have no idea of what he was trying to do, she replied. She told the detective that from then on, Father would try to force kisses on her mouth almost a dozen times over the next four years. In another interview room, Detective Thomas Salisbury interviewed Jolinda Turpin for more than an hour. A child protective services worker stayed with her in the room. Jolinda said that before moving to California in June 2000, Mother had homeschooled her, and she had worked her way up to the letter I in the alphabet. There had been no further lessons in Marietta, but in Paris, Mother had helped her progress to the letter T. 
Ugh. She believed she was ready to accelerate past kindergarten, the investigator later testified. She wanted to accelerate to the first grade because she was tired of doing kindergarten work. Jolinda told him how angry Mother became if she made the slightest mistake in class, pulling her hair and literally throwing her across the room. At the age of 13, Jolinda was virtually illiterate. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. She wanted to go past kindergarten work because she's tired of kindergarten work. I want to go to the first grade at the age of 13. This is all very, very sad, but there's one silver lining about this. There's one silver lining about us being able to hear these firsthand accounts, and it's that the kids got out and were able to tell this to the police and to the, to the detectives. The fact that it says Jolinda told him, meaning she told Detective Thomas Salisbury, means that this was the last day that this abuse went on. At the, at, from their parents, at least. You never know if they went into abusive relationships or if they're, you know, just on their own. But I hope, I hope to fuck that all the Turpin children are doing well. If by some divine miracle, you know, I see one of those little Turpin children, I will think in my, I won't, don't go up to any true crime person. Don't go up to them. Don't be like, oh my God, it was so crazy, your story. They don't want to talk about that shit. If you ever see the Turpin children in public, just think to yourself, I'm glad you got out. I'm very glad that they got out. She told me she could recognize some words, said Salisbury. Any reading that she was able to do was self-taught, and with the assistance of her brothers and her sisters. Jolinda also did not know the difference between a state and a country, and she thought Texas was a country. Um, Texas would like to think it's a country. <laughs> uh, she told the investigator how mother and father had appointed four of the older siblings as hall monitors to spy on the younger ones and stop them stealing food and sneaking into mother's room. In return, they were given extra privileges. It was mother's idea, said Salisbury, to stop the kids from getting candy, things out of mother's room, and food out of the kitchen area. Jolinda said she had been born in Texas and was cared for by Joshua after mother and father moved out of the trailer. She recalled that it was filthy, dirty, and smelled bad. She revealed that she'd last had a bath on Mother's Day 2017. The investigator was sickened to hear Jolinda's description of mother's violent temper. She had been pinched by her mother, said Salisbury, choked by her mother and hit by her mother. Salisbury then interviewed 22-year-old Jonathan. He revealed that Julissa and Joanna had also been chained up when police entered the house. Mother had accused them of all being suspects for stealing food and chained them to their beds. He told the investigator that he had been retrain uh, that he had been restrained retrained. He told the investigator that he worked at McDonald's for two months and didn't do well, but then they retrained him and then he did well. Stupid joke. He told the investigator that he had been restrained in various ways for the last six and a half years. It had started with ropes at the Murrieta house before progressing to bigger and heavier chains when Jonathan was able to escape using his teeth. 
Jonathan said father had chained him up at first, and then mother had taken over. During his punishments, which could last up to two months, he would be chained up all day and only unchained to relieve himself, eat, and brush his teeth. Often, he would be unable to get to the bathroom in time. His wrists and feet had been chained to a safety rail on either side of his top bunk bed so tightly that they were bruised. Jonathan said that he had completed third grade and was done with school, and he did not expect to receive any further homeschooling. When he asked, uh, when asked how many grade levels there were, he guessed ten. In a third interview room, investigator Brett Rooker interviewed Joanna, 14, Jessica, 24, and Joy, 20. Joanna said that Mother had a terrible temper. She described the incident in the Marietta house when Louise had thrown her down the stairs after catching Joanna in her bedroom, leaving her dizzy and crying in pain. Joanna said she had been chained up because she would take things, leaving, quote, dark places on her arms. I asked her to show me both her arms, said Rooker. I saw dirt caked on both her right and left arms. There were clean spots on her wrists from where the chains had been. Her last bath had been on Mother's Day 2017, and she had been chained up since last October. Joanna told the investigator that she had received no homeschooling since the move to Paris almost four years earlier. She said that they had not completed the first book of phonics, Rooker recalled. She told me that her nor her siblings had completed one full lesson for any of their grades. Mother stopped and just gave up. Joanna said she was terrified of Mother, whose hall monitors patrolled the hallway around the clock to stop anyone stealing food or entering her room. She said that Mother knocks her on her head, said the investigator, throws her around the room, pulls her hair... In another interview room, Riverside County Sheriff's Deputy, uh, uh, Riverside County Sheriff's Department Deputy Daniel Brown interviewed 25-year-old Joshua, 11-year-old Julissa, and 18-year-old Janetta. During their two-hour interview, Julissa told him that she was always hungry. Though they usually had jalapeno bologna or peanut butter sandwiches and what she called, quote, freezer food. She said that sometimes they only received bread and water from the faucet. She would see her parents wolfing down a hearty meal, but was too afraid to ever ask for any because she would be yelled at. The emaciated little girl said she adored apple juice, but although Mother always had some in the fridge, she was never given any. She described how Mother would buy pies, but not allow the kids to eat them, letting them mold and eventually throwing them away. Boy, these kids, once they get on their own, they are going to eat everything in sight. And that, that's what happens. They're going to they're gonna have, they weren't allowed to do it, and then they're going to have the freedom, and they're going to have a period where they're just going to, they're going to pig out, they're going to chow down. And they, they should, but within moderation. They can't do that forever. They're, they're going to have to learn. They, they, I, man, I hope that at some point in this book we, we get some word on how they ended up. Because I hope they ended out okay. 
Julissa, too, had received her last bath on Mother's Day and was covered in dirt. She said that just before Christmas 2016, she and three siblings had been caught stealing food out of the pantry because they were so hungry. They were not allowed to celebrate with the rest of the family, but they had to watch, said Brown. They lost their Christmas. She also told the deputy how Mother often punched her with a closed fist, slapped her in the face, or lifted her up off the ground by her hair. She had learned never to cry out in pain, as Mother gets real mad and the punishment would intensify. She called it spankings on the face. Julissa said Mother had started chaining her to the bedpost for up to four months at a time when she turned eleven. The chains would be wrapped around each of her wrists like bracelets and then around the bedpost. Initially, she was able to stand up in the chains, but when Mother found out, she shortened the chains. When the officers had arrived, Julissa had been chained up for fifteen days. She said the chains were tight and bruised her, referring to the black and blue marks as indentations. Deputy Brown asked to see them. He noticed white spots on her arms where the chains had rubbed the dirt away. That's the only way they were cleaned. Oh my God, if it wasn't like below the wrist, the only way that they were cleaned except for their fucking yearly bath on Mother's Day is when the chains rubbed them clean. That's the, oh my God, that's a contender for the saddest sentence I've ever heard. Oh my God. Holy moly. That fucking sucks. At the end of the interview... Deputy Brown asked Julissa who was the big boss in charge. She answered, Mother. After the interviews, each sibling showered and was given a change of clothes. Oh, thank God. Isn't that so great to hear? Oh, fuck. They're finally getting taken care of. Their putrid old ones were collected as evidence. Investigators laid each of the 13 siblings' clothing and underwear on butcher paper, labeling each one before photographing them. The girls' underwear appeared to be covered in dried blood. All the clothing was very heavy and soiled, with an extremely foul odor as they had not been changed in seven months. Then, the Turpin siblings were split up. The six minors were admitted to Riverside University Hospital System and the remaining seven were sent to the Corona Regional Medical Center. Later that day, investigator Brett Rooker photographed the adults for injuries and other evidentiary purposes. When they arrived at the medical center, he placed a, five, uh, a 5150 hold on them so they could be held for up to 72 hours as dependent adults. If you don't know, uh, yeah... A 5150 is where they hold you for three days um, just to monitor you, um, just so they can make sure you're okay. Uh, If you're in Florida, they call it a Baker Act. They were all gravely disabled, Rooker later testified. We asked them what they would do if they went home without their parents, and none of them could answer the question. I didn't feel they were able to care for themselves. They're not... 
after giving statements at the Paris Police Department and having their fingerprints and mugshots taken, David and Louise Turpin were transported 20 miles north to the Robert Presley Detention Center in Riverside, California. They were each booked on nine counts of torture and ten counts of child endangerment. Bail was set at nine million dollars each. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department executed a search warrant for the house on Muirwoods Road, and scores of crime scene investigators arrived to scour every inch, taking photographs and gathering evidence. The whole house stunk, and there was human waste and dirt everywhere. Officers photographed every room, carefully noting all the chains and padlocks still dangling from the many bunk bed guardrails. They also found several moldy pumpkin pies on the kitchen counter. The whole area around the house became a crime scene and was sealed off with police tape. Then officers started canvassing neighbors for any available CCTV footage. They wanted to look at our camera because we got it rolling 24 hours, said Ricardo Ross. You can see the Turpin's backyard from our house. Another neighbor... Andrea Valdez watched various police officers going in and out of the Turpin house all day. One deputy stayed until 10 p.m., and a police truck remained outside all night. When the seven older Turpin siblings were admitted to Corona Regional Medical Center, they had absolutely nothing. Hospital staff went out to buy their patients clothes, paying out of their own pockets. All the adults were so underweight that they needed children's sizes. Hospital CEO Mark Uffler appealed to the Corona Chamber of Commerce for help. So, we went into action, said Corona Chamber President Bobby Spiegel. We found out that the kids were taken there with limited to no clothing. They needed pajamas that night. And I told my staff, you know, it would be nice if we could collect a couple of thousand dollars to go and buy them stuff. Within hours, the chamber had dropped off bags of clothing, shoes, toiletries, and games for the kids. From then on, there was a constant stream of care packages for the new patients arriving by the hour. The seven siblings were placed in their own wing in the hospital with an around-the-clock guard. They had to be taught basic skills like cleaning their teeth and washing and brushing their hair. They had never seen fresh fruit or vegetables and had to be coaxed into tasting blueberries, strawberries, and raspberries. When they first saw a tomato, they were scared. It was only after a nurse ate one to prove it was safe that they gingerly took a bite and loved it. Chapter 20 God Called on Them to Have So Many Children Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a national holiday. I don't mean to be sniffling in the microphone, I'm so sorry. I'm going to try not to do that. It was supposed to be a slow news day, but at 12.30 a.m., the Riverside County Sheriff, Stanley Sniff. Oh, holy shit! Holy shit! Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Stanley Sniff? You mean to tell me 
that this man's name, this man's government name, this man's actual real life name is Stanley Sniff, S-N-I-F-F, like <laughs> Sniff. <laughs> that seems like a, a name that I would fucking make up. That seems like a made up name, but it's real. It's real and it's here. Oh. <laughs> I don't mean to sound so like ecstatic because this is a horrible thing that happened. Oh, but you have to find the silver linings and I find a silver lining in Stanley Sniff. What the fuck? Oh my God, the Sniff family? The Sniffs. I want to see that on the outside of their house. Welcome to the Sniffs. <laughs> what the fuck? All right. <clears throat> Stanley, what'd you do? At 12.30 a.m., the Riverside County Sheriff, Stanley Sniff, posted a dramatic press release online announcing that oh, David and Louise Turpin had been arrested for the suspected torture and endangerment of their 13 children. Well, that to put a fucking damper on things. Accompanying the release were the couple's mugshots. This would set in motion global coverage of one of the biggest news stories in years. Early Sunday morning on January 14, 2018, a 17-year-old juvenile escaped from her residence situated in the 100 block of Muir Woods Road, Paris, and managed to call 911 from a cellular device she found inside the house. The teenager claimed her 12 brothers and sisters were being held captive inside the residence by her parents and further claimed some of her siblings were bound with chains and padlocks. When police officers from the Paris Police Department and deputies from the Riverside County Sheriff's Department met with the juvenile, she appeared to be only 10 years old and slightly emaciated. After a brief interview with the female, they contacted 57-year-old David Allen Turpin and 49-year-old Louise Anna Turpin at the residence where the teenager escaped. Further investigation revealed several children shackled to their beds with chains and padlocks in dark and foul-smelling surroundings, but the parents were unable to immediately provide a logical reason why their children were restrained in that manner. Deputies located what they believed to be 12 children inside the house, but were shocked to discover that seven of them were actually adults, ranging in age from 18 to 29. The victims appeared to be malnourished and very dirty. All 13 victims, ranging from the age of 2 to 29, were transported to the Paris station and interviewed. Both parents were detained and transported to the station for further investigation. Child Protective Services and Adult Protective Services arrived to assist in the investigation. The victims were provided with food and beverages after they claimed to be starving. The six children were eventually transported to the Riverside University Hospital System for medical examinations and were admitted for treatment. The seven adult children were transported to the Corona Regional Medical Center for an examination and admitted for medical treatment. Both parents were interviewed in this matter and subsequently transported to the Robert Presley Detention Center. They were booked for violations of California Penal Code Section 206, Torture, and Section 273A, Child Endangerment. Bail was set at $9 million each. Anyone with additional information regarding this investigation is encouraged to contact Master Investigator Thomas Salisbury at the Paris station. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to sniff again. I did it. <laughs> Tom Salisbury, Stanley Sniff, Merlin Voy. Dude, what is up with these people? people? Sometimes people have fucked up names, man. Like, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> All right. 
When reporter Brian Rokos of the Press Enterprise, which covers Riverside County, first saw the press release, he almost put it to the side. We get a lot of those, explained Rokos, and usually we'll take a quick look at them and say, well, we'll get to it at some point. But in this case, we knew that this was going to be a big story and we needed to get somebody to the house right away. Within minutes of the release being posted online, Los Angeles-based NBC4 assigned reporter Tony Shin to the story. I got a call from my assignment desk, he said, and they said, you have to go now. When he arrived at 160 Muir Woods Road, things were quiet. Police were still searching the Turpin house, refusing any comment. I was one of the first reporters there, said Shin. And then after about 30 to 40 minutes, neighbors started coming out. More media started showing up. And then it became a madhouse. That Monday, all 13 Turpin siblings were medically screened to assess what physical and mental damage they had sustained from their years of captivity. Because the doctors and nurses at both hospitals would be the first people the siblings had ever interacted with outside the, ho- the house on an ongoing basis, a team of positive, upbeat physicians were hand-picked to treat them. I think that's a good idea. Show them some positivity. Um, but is this going to be too much? Are they? I hope that they like do a gradual release. Dr. Fari Kamalpur the director of the hospitalist program for the Corona Regional Medical Center was appointed the attending physician for all seven Turpin adults. The center's lead dietary manager, Jenel Garay, was put in charge of their individual dietary requirements. But even the well-trained medical professionals were shocked when they first saw the terrible state of their emaciated, stunned patients. All the siblings, except for two-year-old Jana, had suffered severe malnourishment, nerve damage, and mental and cognitive impairment. Many of the adult siblings had muscle loss due to bad diet and lack of exercise. Nearly all of them were between 20 and 50 pounds underweight. When 29-year-old Jennifer Turpin was admitted to the hospital, she was 5 foot 3 and weighed just 80 pounds. Dr. Kamalpur diagnosed her as suffering from low cognition, ability to perform mental tasks. She also had severe protein caloric malnutrition and an acute B12 deficiency, causing peripheral neuropathy, which resulted in tingling, numbness, and weakness in her hands and feet. She was also suffering from cachexia, or a wasting away of her muscles due to long-term extreme weight loss and loss of muscle tone, as were the rest of her adult siblings. Dr. Kamalpur found that Jennifer and her 24-year-old sister Jessica would probably never be able to have children. <sighs> wow. Jesus Christ. Uh, oh, oh, my. Uh, this, all of these results. Like, they're not going to have children because of choices made for them because of things that they were forced to go through. Unfair. This is very unfair. Joshua was 5'8 and weighed just 115 pounds. He was diagnosed with severe iron and vitamin D deficiency, as were all but one of his adult siblings. Jessica, Joy, and Julianne were all severely underweight and suffered from malnutrition, cachexia, and vitamin deficiency. 22-year-old Jonathan also suffered from these ailments, as well as skeletal abnormalities, 
caused by all the years of being restrained by ropes or chains. He was five foot seven and only weighed 100 pounds, 47 pounds below what he should have. The only adult who was not underweight was Janetta, although she too was diagnosed with slow cognition, neuropathy, severe protein caloric malnutrition, and severe iron and vitamin D deficiency. Dr. Mark Massey, a pediatrician at the Riverside University Health System, treated Jordan, James, and Julissa, who was in the worst condition of all the younger siblings. 11-year-old Julissa had a body weight percentile of just 0.01, compared to a healthy weight percentile between 5 and 85, and a body height percentile of 0.79, well below the normal range of 5 to 95. Holy moly! Dr. Massey also performed a mid-upper um, mid arm circumference test on her, finding that her mid-upper arms were the same size as a four-month-old baby's. 11-year-old Julissa. Julissa was more than 15 pounds underweight, anemic, and had severe muscle wastage. She had such low potassium and glucose levels, her heart was damaged, and extreme malnutrition had caused liver damage. She also suffered from psychosocial dwarfism, or stunted growth, as the result of living in such an abusive and neglective environment. 15-year-old James was in the .01 percentile for his weight and 1.4 for his height. His muscles were so weak that he had an abnormal gait and difficulty walking. He had a vitamin D deficiency and visible scoliosis. His back curved into an S-shape. James also exhibited disturbing antisocial behavior, telling the doctor that he wanted to kill animals and believed his dreams could predict the future. The doctor then examined Jordan, who weighed just over 94 pounds. She also suffered from protein calorie malnutrition and muscle wasting and had mild scoliosis. Dr. Massey found Jordan to be very childlike for her age, sending her for speech therapy as she was so hard to understand. The other three minors were treated by Dr. Sophia Grant, the medical director of the Child Abuse Unit at Riverside University Health System. She found that Jolinda and Joanna suffered from severe malnutrition and muscle wasting. 13-year-old Jolinda with a body weight percentile of 0.04 and body height of 0.01 was very small, and due to malnutrition, showed none of the normal signs of puberty for a girl her age. Joanna, who also had a body weight percentage of 0.01 and a height of 0.81, also suffered from vitamin D and potassium deficiencies. In the 10 days she spent at the hospital, Joanna would put almost 8 pounds on, more than a normal girl of her age would gain in a year. Dr. Grant also examined two-year-old Jana, who was the best fed of all the siblings. Her body weight percentile was 7.5, and her height was 7.18. The toddler weighed 25.5 pounds when she was admitted and would gain a further 3 pounds over the next three months. That afternoon, the press enterprise broke the story online with the headline, 13 captive siblings, some chained to beds, rescued from Paris house, parents arrested. 
both authorities and neighbors were stunned by the discovery. Brian Rocos reported. He interviewed neighbor Ricardo Ross, who said he was in total disbelief. It's very shocking, he said, very devastating. Soon, dozens of people had gathered in groups along Muir Woods Road as a helicopter hovered overhead. A procession of motorists drove by the brown stucco house where a van and three other vehicles, including two Volkswagens with vanity plates DL Forever and DS Land, were parked outside. One had a baby seat in the back. A dozen television news crews had set up camp by the house. They would remain there for a week. Reporters went door-to-door, speaking to neighbors for any insight into the mysterious Turpin family, but few residents on the street could tell them very much. They looked very unnutritioned, said Wendy Martinez, who lived nearby. Very white, like they never got any sun at all. I mean, they would never come out, and when they did, the lady would stand there watching them. Neighbor Andrea Valdez said that her family had joked that the family was just like the fictional Cullen family of vampires from the hit Twilight movies. They only came out at night, she said. They were really, really pale. Inside 160 Muir Woods Road, dozens of crime scene investigators sifted through the thick dirt, collecting piles of forensic evidence that was then packaged up and driven away for analysis. Cadaver dogs were also brought in, searching for human remains. Officers videoed and photographed every inch of the house. In the garage, they found hundreds of DVDs, alphabetized and stacked up to the ceiling. These included every season of the Kate Plus 8 reality show, Disney cartoons, and a collection of horror movies, including Glass House, The Good Mother, about two seemingly ideal parents who torture and imprison their adopted children. That evening, all three Los Angeles television networks led off with the sensational story, which would soon go national. They had easily accessed the David Louise Turpin Facebook page with all the family photographs of the couple posing with their 12 identically dressed children at Disneyland. There was also the stunning video of the Las Vegas wedding renewals, showing the Turpins and their children posing with Elvis. Tortured, starved, and shackled, declared the anchor of NBC's 6 o'clock news, 13 brothers, and force, 13 brothers and sisters forced to live in filth. Tonight, their parents are accused of unthinkable crimes. I don't know if I could be an anchor. That's a lot harder than it looks. Reporting live from outside the Turpin home, reporter Tony Shin canvassed the neighbors' stunned reactions. They said they knew the family was a little strange, said Shin, but they didn't think anyone was getting hurt. Julie Olha expressed horror that something like this could have happened in Paris. If we had known, we would have turned this in a lot sooner, she had told Shin, because we take care of each other in this neighborhood. Araceli Olosagaste um, described David and Louise being led out of their house in handcuffs. She said David had been crying uncontrollably, crying uncontrollably while his wife was acting very strange, smirking at the officers and then spitting twice on the ground. KABC 7's news broadcast from the first reactions from the family members. Jim and Betty Turpin had learned what had happened to their grandchildren after getting a call from a reporter at their Princeton, West Virginia home. When Bluefield Daily Telegraph reporter Greg Jordan learned there was a Princeton connection to the story... He found Jim and Betty Turpin's number in the phone book 
and immediately called them. And Jim was gracious enough to talk to me for a few minutes, said Jordan. Of course, he did not believe the charges he was hearing. They were trying hard to contact authorities in California to find out what had been happening with the children. The elder Turpins told ABC News that they were surprised and shocked at the allegations and had last visited their son and his family about four or five years earlier. At the time, they appeared to be a happy family, said the grandparents, although the children seemed thin. Asked why David and Louise had so many children, they said God had called on them to do so. To Greg Jordan, Jim Turpin described his son as a fine person who did an outstanding job. He told Jordan that when he'd last seen his grandchildren, the kids were fine, Jordan recalled. They were healthy and nothing was wrong. It was a brief interview as Jim wanted to get off the phone so he could get more details from the Riverside County Sheriff's Office. He was holding up as well as he could, said Jordan. He wasn't hysterical, but he wanted to get on with the business of contacting the authorities and talking to the grandchildren themselves. He didn't believe the charges and wanted to find out what was going on. I mean, unless you have direct evidence, unless you've been seeing the signs, unless he was like sniffing out that they had been fucking around and abusing their kids, nobody could have known. No one could have known. A few hours later, Jim and Betty Turpin hired Princeton lawyer Paige Flanagan to represent them. James and Betty Turpin had no knowledge of the allegations that had been made regarding this matter read a statement issued by the Flanagan Law Office, other than what they have seen in the media. They would ask the media to respect their family's privacy at this time as they deal with this difficult situation, and their focus is solely on the safety of their son and grandchildren. Back in Tennessee, Elizabeth Flores learned what had happened when somebody posted a link to the story on her Facebook, asking, Is this your sicko sister? Oh my god! What the fuck? Who the fuck would do that? that? God, Facebook is so disgusting. Facebook is so detrimental. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, her response. My initial response was, oh, my God. Oh, my God. She remembered. And I broke down. I knew my sister was strange, but never anything like this. And then not even five minutes later, I had a news reporter calling and wanting to interview me. And it began like that. Elizabeth called her sister, Teresa Robinette, and told her to sit down. I looked at the news, and I just, I don't really know how to describe the feeling to you, Teresa told Fox News. I felt like it wasn't real. Then I just got mad. My next emotion was anger. When she turned on the television, she immediately saw her sister and brother-in-law's mugshots. That in itself shocked me, she said. Quickly branded the House of Horrors, the story of what had gone on behind closed doors at 160 Muir Woods Road spread like wildfire, shocking everyone who had ever come into contact with the Turpin family. Back in Rio Vista, Texas, Ashley Vineyard told a reporter that she finally knew why her old neighbors had been so secretive. I wanted to say I'm shocked, she said, but at the same time, it kind of all adds up looking back. I find it disturbing. Our... Oh, excuse me. Her father, Ricky, said he now wished he had alerted authorities. Uh, yeah, you fucking think? I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. In, in every sense of the word with these types of issues, with these types of crimes. It's just very sad. I found it very disturbing, he said. We should have done something. 
Today I still feel terrible about it. These people are shit. Elvis impersonator Kent Ripley, who married David and Louise three times in Las Vegas, twice with their children present, now found his interactions with the family disturbing. I never would have thought this, he said, and I feel so bad for the children. Ripley said he hoped that their two visits to Las Vegas had at least been a ray of light in the children's otherwise dark existence. Were they free for a moment in the outside world, he asked. Did they look back and go, oh, that was great? Or do they look back and say, we got punished when we got back to the hotel? That night, uh, Elvis Chapel removed all videos of the three Turpin marriage renewals from its website, and the David Louise Turpin Facebook page was taken down. Chapter 21 I Would Call That Torture At 10 o'clock a.m. Tuesday morning... As police, as police, the fuck, <laughs> the police, the police, the police force. I will call the police on you. <laughs> I'm just gonna run with it. At 10 o'clock a.m. Tuesday morning, as police arrived at 595 Hill County Road in Texas with cadaver dogs to search for human remains, Captain Greg Fellows, the Paris chief of police, held a press conference. Scores of reporters and cameramen packed into a conference room at the Riverside County Sheriff's Department. First of all, he began, I'm very saddened to report on such a heartbreaking case. Captain Fellows recounted how Jordan, whose name he withheld, had dialed 911 early Sunday morning, reporting that she and her 12 siblings were being held against their will, and some were chained up. The deputies and a supervisor had met the girl who had showed them photos of her two sisters chained to their beds, then, they had gone straight over to 160 Muir Woods Road to conduct a welfare check. When they arrived inside the house, he continued, they noticed that the children were malnourished, it was very dirty, and the conditions were horrific. The biological parents and children were taken to the parish uh, sheriff's station for further investigation. He emphasized that this was an ongoing investigation and that nothing would be ruled out. I wish I could come to you today with information that would explain why this happened, he said with obvious emotion. But we do need to acknowledge the courage of the young girl who escaped from that residence to bring attention so they could get the help that they so needed. The mayor of Paris, Michael Vargas, took the podium next. I can truly say that I'm devastated at this act of cruelty and heartfelt for the victims, he said. I can't begin to imagine the pain and suffering that they must have endured. Mayor Vargas thanked the police department for its swift response, saying he had faith that officers would do a thorough investigation. This is a very happy and tight, hard-working family community, he said. And I know I speak on behalf of the residents of Paris that our thoughts and prayers are with the victims as they endure the next few weeks that are coming up. Next, Dr. Sophia Grant, the medical director of the Child Abuse Unit at the Riverside University Health System, addressed the immediate medical needs of the 13 victims, including the three siblings she was treating. They would require stabilization, she said, and in cases of starvation, we would have to slowly start to feed them to avoid any problems that refeeding may cause. The long-term needs of these kids are going to be the psychological and psychiatric needs due to the prolonged periods of starvation and maltreatment. Mark Uffer took over with an update on the seven adults' progress at the Corona Regional Medical Center. It's hard to think of them as adults when you first see them, he said, because they're small. It's very clear that they're malnutritioned. He told the audience that all seven were stable and being fed appropriately. 
They're comfortable, and they're in a safe and secure environment, he said. They've gone through a very traumatic ordeal, and I can tell you that they are very friendly. They're very cooperative, and I believe that they're hopeful that life will get better for them after this event. Captain Fellows then took a few questions from the bustling crowd. Did the parents try and explain what was going on? asked one TV reporter. I can't get into the specific details of the conversation, replied the captain, but it seemed the mother was perplexed as to why we were at that residence. Another reporter asked if law enforcement or child protective services had ever been called out to 160 Muirwoods Road. No, sir. We had no prior contacts at that residence regarding any allegations of child abuse or neglect. ABC7 reporter Rob McMillan questioned whether religion had played any part of it. I spoke to David Turpin's parents last night, he said. They were a very religious family. They taught their kids the Bible and actually instructed them to memorize large sections of it. Could religion have caused this? Is this some sort of cult or an offshoot of religion that made them treat their children like this? As of right now, Fellows said, I have no information regarding any religious organization associated with this matter, but again, we're still in the very early stages of this investigation. A reporter asked for details on how the Turpin siblings had been tortured. I can't get into the specifics of that, he said again. But if you can imagine being 17 years old and appearing to be a 10-year-old, being chained to a bed, being malnourished and injuries associated with that, I would call that torture. Reporters then directed their questions to Dr. Grant, asking what was ahead for the children medically, physically, and psychologically. Well, you can imagine the post-traumatic stress disorder, she replied, if you've been deprived of nutrition for a prolonged period of time, if you've been deprived of normal childhood activities, normal interactions, and the people who should have been providing for you have failed to do so, that's going to cause some psychological damage. The psychological support is going to be ongoing and long-term. Asked if there was any hope of a full recovery after so many years of physical and psychological torture, she said, I think there's always hope. But you have to imagine that these kids are going to need a lot of support. This is going to be long-term, and they're going to need support and loving, supporting people in their lives to help them try to achieve any type of normal life. The discovery, first revealed by the Press Enterprise reporter Brian Rokos, that David Turpin had been running a private school to keep his children under the radar, may raised many questions about the tax regulations for homeschooling in California. On Tuesday morning, the California Department of Education issued a statement denying any responsibility for what had happened. We are sickened by this tragedy, it read, and relieved that the children are now safe and the authorities are investigating. Full-time private schools are required to register with the state to record their students' exemption from compulsory attendance at public schools. Under California law, the CDE does not have the authority to monitor, inspect, or oversee private schools. Since the story had broken... Rokos had been researching private school licensing, discovering that all private schools should receive an annual inspection by the fire department. But in the seven years that David Turpin had registered his city day school and then Sandcastle Day School, there had never been a single inspection. The legislation makes it very specific that any day school that files the affidavit, as the Turpins did, would be subject to the annual inspection. They never did one, Rokos explained. Restaurants and daycare homes have to be expected, inspected, but apparently not private schools. Local Assemblyman Joe Medina decided that it was time to take action and tighten up regulations for private home schools. The former high school teacher was shocked that David Turpin would have been able to hide in plain sight under the guise of running a private school. He listed himself as the principal of the Sandcastle School, said Assemblyman Medina, who chairs the California State Assembly's Higher Education Committee. 
That was striking to me. I am extremely concerned about the lack of oversight the state of California currently has in monitoring private and home schools. The assemblyman called the CDE and the Office of State Superintendent, looking for answers. He demanded an investigation into why the Turpin private schools had never received a fire inspection, and he also began drafting legislation to toughen up the regulations for opening a private school and monitoring the schools more closely. Paris is a great city and has many, many good things going on, he said, and I think when they move on past it, as they should, there'll be some good that comes out. Soon after Tuesday morning's press conference, 81-year-old Betty Turpin gave a series of interviews defending her son David and daughter-in-law Louise. She told the CNN the couple had been highly protective of their children, expressing total shock that they now faced torture and child endangerment charges. This is a highly respectable family, she said, who had annual passes to Disneyland. Oh, boy. The annual passes were for fucking David and Louise and David and Louise only, not for their children. Ugh, that's very disappointing. The sibling's grandmother also spoke to Time, accusing the media of distorting everything. We don't believe anything until we find proof, she told reporter Melissa Chan. It's just a one-sided story. You can't always go with that. She said her college-educated son had a good upbringing, and she was very proud of him. He's very likable, she said, raised in a Christian home all his life, gone to church all his life. To the Southern California News Group, she called the whole family model Christians, saying David shared her Pentecostal faith. She reflected on her own five-day visit to Marietta six years earlier and said she'd witnessed nothing untoward to raise her suspicions. They are the sweetest family, she explained. They were just like any ordinary family, and they had good relationships. I'm not just saying this stuff. We were amazed. The grandmother said she never heard any of the kids argue. Yeah, because they weren't allowed to make a fucking peep. I drink. Some now say they were told to behave, she said. But you take a household of kids over five days and they're going to be themselves. It was wonderful. Though Betty was a staunch and outspoken supporter of her son, when reporters attempted to contact David's older brother, Dr. Randy Turpin, they were told that he had taken a leave of absence from his position as president of Valor Christian College. In a prepared statement, the Ohio-based college said Dr. Turpin was on a sabbatical while he dealt with revelations about estranged family members. The Valor Christian community joins with millions of Americans who are shocked and saddened by these terrible stories from California, and we are praying for the full recovery of all involved. Soon afterward, David Turpin's employer, Northrop Grumman, issued a formal statement as well. We are deeply troubled by the nature of the allegations against Mr. Turpin. We have no information regarding the case and would refer any inquiries to the authorities, it read. After press reports that Jonathan Tur uh, Joshua Turpin, excuse me, after press reports that Joshua Turpin attended Mount San Jacinto College, its public information office also felt the need to speak out. Mount San Jacinto College is aware that one of the children of the Paris couple accused of torture and child endangerment was previously enrolled at MSJC, a statement read. These allegations are extremely disturbing. We at Mount San Jacinto College are deeply saddened and hor horrified to hear of the allegations involving these children. Our hearts go out to the victims. The college refused to give out any information about the student, citing privacy laws. On Wednesday morning... 
Elizabeth Flores appeared on Good Morning America. Producers had flown her to New York the night before for an exclusive interview by Robin Roberts in ABC's Times Square Studios. I know this is a difficult time for everyone, Roberts began. It was so hard for all of us to hear about your nieces and nephews. What was it like when you first heard the news? Well, I was shocked, Elizabeth replied. I was devastated, just like the rest of the world. As a series of Facebook pictures of the Turpins at Disneyland flashed up, Roberts asked Elizabeth about the summer she'd spent living with the Turpins in Fort Worth back in 1996. I thought they were really strict, Elizabeth said, but I didn't see any type of abuse. I heard, Roberts continued, so that your brother-in-law at the time made you uncomfortable. How so? Yes, replied Elizabeth, if I went to get in the shower... He would come in while I was there and watch me. And it was like a joke. He never touched me or anything. When Roberts asked what she would like to say to her sister, Elizabeth burst into tears. I want her to know she's still my flesh and blood and I love her, she said, struggling to compose herself. I don't agree with what she did. And I want her to know that I'm praying for her salvation. But mainly, we want to reach out to the kids. To know that they do have a family that love them, whether they know us or not. On Wednesday afternoon, a forensics team from the Riverside County Sheriff's Office removed dozens of boxes of evidence from 160 Muirwoods Road. They also seized two safes and pieces of a bed frame, throwing hundreds of bags of trash into the backyard. Our investigators are combing the scene, said Deputy Mike Vasquez at the Riverside County Sheriff's Office, making sure they cover all the angles. Since the Turpin siblings' rescue, Muirwoods Road had become a tourist destination. Curiosity seekers lined the road, taking photographs. A steady stream of cars drove slowly past the now infamous Turpin House, with rubberneckers snapping pictures on their cell phone. This isn't Disneyland where you take pictures, complained Kimberly Mulligan. Who does that? Uh, me. I would. I'm, I'm just being honest, and I'm not even saying it to brag. I'm saying, I mean, that's... I, I would, I probably would have, not like immediately as the shit was going down, but like years later, like I'll go to, I was thinking about going to the Waco farm. I was thinking about going to the Waco farm just to visit uh, where the Waco siege happened, you know, because it's interesting. It's an interesting piece of history. Um, I wouldn't do it as the investigation was fucking happening though. Um, <laughs> Residents were becoming increasingly upset by all the questions of how this could have happened without anyone in the neighborhood realizing. How could you blame the community? asked Andrea Val Valdez. Where, where we were outside, cars would stop and say, you didn't know anything? Mayor Vargas went to the Monument Park community's aid, comforting neighbors and urging them to be positive. When global attention now firmly fixed on Paris, Mayor Vargas said his major, main concern was for his residents. It's a very negative thing, and we don't need that in our city, but I wasn't worried about that. I was more worried about the neighboring folks, how they were doing, and how they were affected by this. Dan Brodsky-Chenfield, who manages Skydive Paris, said the House of Horrors had been on everyone's lips. It's only a mile away from here, said the six-time world skydiving champion. It's insane. It's on the news everywhere. It just really shows you that maybe you want to know your neighbors better. But along with the backlash came an outpouring of support for the 13 Turpin children from the local community and all over the world. 
the Corona Chamber of Commerce had donated a bag of new clothes to each of the siblings and opened a fund that would eventually raise more than $200,000 for them. The chamber has been given a gift, said President Bobby Spiegel. It's truly an opportunity for us to do something good because Corona Regional Medical Center is one of our premier members. He said everyone in Corona, a 45-minute drive from Paris, had been moved by the siblings' plight and wanted to embrace them. I refuse to even call them by their last name, said Spiegel. The parents, or those idiots who consider themselves parents, don't deserve to have their family name carried on. So we changed the whole thing. When people call in, we refer to them as the Magnificent Thirteen. And we want to be able to speak it into existence that they're going to have a magnificent life. And they'll each be a big contribution to the society. In the days after the escape, the Chamber of Commerce was inundated with offers of support. We were taking 200 calls a day from people wanting to know how they could help, said Spiegel. From every tragedy, good things happen, and this horrific situation has brought out the best of so many people. The Corona Regional Medical Center staff bought each of the seven adults a pair of shoes. They were the first shoes they had ever owned, and they slept in them so they wouldn't be taken away like their parents had done. They were afraid that anything they got was going to be taken away, said hospital CEO Mark Offer. There was always a question, at least from one or two of them. Is anybody going to take my things? These kids are going to grow up to be hoarders if we're not careful. Oh, goodness. Uffler promised them that nothing would ever be taken away from them while they were at this facility. During their first few weeks there, the siblings formed close attachments with staff members. It was the first time in their lives that they had ever been fussed over and made to feel important. They really thrived on the attention from nurses and staff, said Uffer. When they saw certain nurses, they would run to them, a little bit overwhelming when you first experienced it. On Thursday morning, Taha Munjaibuddin, who had been in Jennifer Turpin's third grade class at Meadow Creek Elementary School, apologized to her on Facebook. Jennifer Turpin was the one girl at Meadow Creek Elementary School that nobody wanted to be caught talking to, he wrote. Every grade level had a designated cootie kid, and she held the title for our year. Describing her as frail with pin-straight hair with bangs, he wrote that she had worn the same purple outfit to school every day and smelled bad. He recalled the entire class scoffing at her one day because the teacher had asked her to discard a scrunchie made out of an old Hershey bar wrapper, which she had used to tie her hair back. After she moved away at the end of the third grade, Taha had forgotten about Jennifer until reading about the horrific coverage of her siblings' escape. I can't help but feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, he wrote. Of course, none of us are responsible for the events that ensued, but you can't help but feel rotten when the classmates your peer peers made fun of for, quote, smelling like poop, literally had to sit in her own waist because she was chained to her bed. It is nothing but sobering to know that the person who sat across from you at the lunch table went home to squalor and filth while you went home to a warm meal and a bedtime story. There was an important lesson to be learned from how his third grade class so cruelly mocked Jennifer. A simple act of kindness and acceptance may be the ray of hope that a person needs. Befriend the Jennifer Turpins of the world. And he wrote that... Despite being vehemently vilified by her peers, Jennifer had always maintained a cheerful disposition which would ultimately prevail. 
that, despite being let down by her parents and by her peers alike, he wrote, Jennifer rose above it all. And I'm going to be rooting for her, as her peer, as her classmate, as her friend. Jennifer Turpin, from Cootie Girl to Conquered the World. Oh, man, oh, man. I think I'm going to leave it there. We're going to stop off uh, at chapter 22. I think we got through chapters 19, 20, and 21. Maybe 18, 19, 20, and 21. I don't remember. I don't remember. But these were long-ass chapters this time. It was good to know that the kids were being taken care of. They escaped. They're good. They're working towards the next steps of their life at this point. So I'm... I'm happy for them. I really am. Oh, my God. Next chapter. What are we going to be in store for next week? We're going to be starting off with chapter 22, where the Riverside County District Attorney is going to hold a press conference to announce that he's filing charges against David and Louise Turpin. 75 felony charges is what we're going to pick back up on when we're done. If you've made it to the end of the episode, motherfucker, I love you. I also... Oh, shit. If you guys want to watch me play video games and chat with me in real time and you want to do that stuff, I have a Twitch account. I'm streaming on Twitch now. I'm going to try to become a full-time Twitch streamer. I would love to do that. I would love to make money doing that to entertain my audience in a new and novel way. So if you would like to do that, go to twitch.tv slash Hamilton Streams. That's twitch.tv slash H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N-S-T-R-E-A-M-S Hamilton Streams. Oh! Fuck the Turpins. Fuck the Turpins. Louise is a swamp bitch and David's a slut. I hate them both. I hate them both. I hope they're dead. I hate them both. Well, thank you guys for joining me on this journey. Thank you guys for just, like, listening along. I never expected to be this far into the book. We're almost fucking done. We're almost done with this book. We only have a few more chapters to go, but I, I see the thickness of the book, and we're about two-thirds away through that motherfucker. So, thank you. Thank you for forcing me to read. Thank you for reading along with me. If you enjoy the podcast, fucking thanks. And if you want to see me play some games, do some stuff over there, then go to twitch.tv slash streams. You don't have to, but it'd be cool. It'd be cool if you did. All right. I'm going to get out of here. I'm stuck in this room, and I don't know how to get out. Help me. Help me. I'm going to dig my way out. <laughs>